OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome. Um, today, uh, we're with Matt Cohen and uh, at Ask an Angel and uh, brought to you by OPN. So what I'm really excited about today, Matt, is I've gone through so much of your material and a lot of, you guys do a lot of stuff, which is very exciting. And you're kind of a little bit on the, a little bit of a different uh, interview that we do, because normally we go and talk with angels, try to figure out what they're looking for. But you guys are like the shopping basket of venture capital and what's going on inside of it. So you guys got a lot of everything, which is really what I'm excited to dive into. So maybe what we can do to start off is if you can give us a little bit more of a background on yourself where you've come from, what you've been up to, and then um, maybe a snapshot of where you're at now, and then we'll dive into it. And then one thing about you that nobody will know. Sure. Um, yeah, well, uh, maybe I'll start with the one thing that people don't know about me is uh, I used to be a pretty big avid barefoot water skier when I was a kid, and I, I love doing it still today, even though I'm a bit older. And uh, I was able to uh, barefoot water ski when I was a kid with one foot uh, in the rope, no hands, and was able to chug a beer uh, all in one spell swoop. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, probably nobody knows awesome. that about me. So that was a claim to fame for me. Um, you know, for me, I, uh, I didn't come from traditional venture capital, uh, technology or private equity world. I was on wall street for over a decade working in New York and Toronto for RBC, uh, on the merger, urban adventure and hedge fund team. Um, I spent uh, a good part of my time in New York during the last crisis, um, you know, covering global hedge funds, working uh, on the trading desk and, and dealing with the fast paced markets uh, on a daily basis. So this crisis and the volatility in the markets is, is quite familiar to me, brought out a lot of uh, mixed emotions from that time being down in New York during the last crisis. Um, I moved back to Toronto, Canada, where I'm originally from in 2012-13. Uh, and while still working at the bank, I ended up uh, helping start a tech company uh, with a couple of good friends called Turnstile Solutions. Um, I wrote the first check to get the company started and helped grow that company uh, to, I think, about 45 or so employees and uh, eventually get the company uh, acquired by Yelp in 2017. That was my first angel investment. Uh, very first time I ever took the chance to bet on people before they really had anything. Uh, and it was very lucky that it worked out for us. Um, and there was a lot of lessons learned along the way, which I'm happy to get into. Um, fast forward, I, uh, I left capital markets finance, um, in 2015, I went to go work for a FinTech company in Toronto called street context, which was, uh, run by Blair Livingston still is and backed, uh, by formation eight and a couple other firms, um, to help them build out their enterprise sales team in 2016, 2017, I ended up moving to Boston, uh, to work on their uh, enterprise sales team in the U S market. And I got a lot of exposure, uh, hanging around the sort of Boston and Cambridge, Harvard, MIT ecosystem, uh, anytime I could to see what was going on there as an angel. And it really started with me just sort of reaching out to founders and meeting companies on my free time in the Boston ecosystem and started writing checks as an angel under the name Ripple. Uh, I really loved the name Ripple and the Ripple effect. And so I set up a, a landing page. I reached out to a couple founders and just started making angel investments uh, under the name Ripple Ventures uh, as an angel. And uh, some family offices noticed what I was doing uh, and they said, you know, if you ever move back to Toronto, let us know and we'd be happy to support you as a, a early stage fund. So that sort of came to fruition in 2018 with the launch of Ripple Ventures Fund One, which was just over $10 million. 
uh, predominantly made up of my capital and my partners. My partner, Michael, came from traditional enterprise SaaS operating world. He'd run his own bootstrap company, which was a networking data hosting ISP company that uh, he was also as an angel investor in Turnstile. So we connected through that. And then we came together and launched Fund One and, and sort of been on the races since then. Well, that's amazing and a great story. Uh, is that, was the Turnstile with Ryan Friedman? Yeah, so Ryan was actually a good friend of mine. We grew up together. I brought him in as a, an angel. Um, and then he ended up coming. We finally convinced him to join uh, the company as a head of partnerships. And he was a, a huge influence on the company um, for us because he was definitely one of the smartest guys we were able to recruit. And we had no money. Um, so we had to give him uh, a good amount of uh, equity and, and a fair salary. And it worked out well for everyone. So Ryan was definitely part of the team there. So... This is a while back, and I don't remember which year it was, but we were actually working with Ryan, as I own a software company. We were working with Ryan on helping build out part of the platform, if I remember this story correctly. And we were just about to sign the paperwork, and then Ryan called us and said, guys, I don't want to do this. I'm sorry, but we can't sign the paperwork. I'll tell you after, but it's really exciting, but we can't do anything. And then literally two days later, I guess that's when you guys got acquired or something occurred. Um, uh, so yeah, maybe April, 2017, I think it was. Yeah, so we were like, so excited. This is so cool. And then all of a sudden we got acquired. I'm like, oh man, but then obviously very happy because you guys got acquired. So it was, uh, it was really cool, but that was with one of my still existing business, but uh, I thought that was pretty exciting. So uh, that's how I do Brian and also, um, Adam, I think Adam was, uh, is Adam Levine part of that somehow too, or? Sure, yeah, Adam Adam is another good friend of mine. Him and uh, Ryan are kind of like um, cousin-laws, um, okay. and Adam's a very close friend of mine. He, uh, he actually helps advise Ripple companies, and he and his family were an angel investor in Turnstile as well. Oh, okay, man, small world, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Even very though that was world. like four years ago, that is still pretty cool, so... Uh, no, that's amazing. So all great things. And um, I, I'm excited. I was going to ask you about the barefoot thing because I, I attempted <laughs> to do it once before. Uh, I wasn't very successful. I didn't get very far, but it was still fun. So I've been always curious is, do you have to build up so you don't get foot burn or <laughs> it just actually just happen because you've been walking a lot? I'm trying to understand how that one works. Yeah. I mean, you can walk around with bare feet for a while to get some calluses built up, but uh, it doesn't really hurt that much. It's when you're going really, really fast and you're, you're doing it improperly, then it starts to burn. It shouldn't burn if you're doing it the right way, but if you're doing it the wrong way, you're probably going to burn your face before you burn your feet. Oh, I didn't even know there was a right way. Yeah. <laughs> if you're standing up, it's the right way. It's working. Yeah. Standing All up right, until you're not. That's how I figure it works. So <laughs> interesting to know that. So I'll try that next time. Noted. Noted. So uh, if we go back to your uh, your RBC days, uh, you obviously did a lot of different things inside of the RBC. But one of the things that was really interesting is that because you take the experience you had in the capital markets, you take the experience that you had uh, on the trading desk, how much of that really benefited you today while you're making these investments in companies? It's a whole different perspective, right? So did it carry through and really benefit you or is it something that you had to learn working with startups? 
Um, I think it definitely benefited me in a couple of ways. You know, one, having thick skin uh, is an important part of the job. You're getting told uh, to F off and a lot of bad words and, you know, know a lot. So uh, that's part of the job that I've uh, definitely grown a part of. Um, also, just the ability to sell uh, anything, uh, it, to be able to do that in a very fast paced environment, chasing deals, you know, trying to convince people to work with you really important. And then just understanding the mechanisms of capital markets and, you know, the ability to understand how to analyze a company and, you know, uh, analyze a market and, you know, th think about things that you can be blindsided by uh, as an investor is really important. I think also uh, understanding how companies become public is really important, even though like, you know, majority of companies don't actually become public to understand how companies get there and how to talk talk the talk and then walk the walk when you're an early stage company is really important. You know, the one thing we try to really do at Ripple is try to put a strong corporate governance and structure inside the organization early on, even though they're not ready for it necessarily. So, you know, reporting requirements, proper board meetings, proper, uh, you know, uh, financial statements, things like that. So that when you do run into a $10 million uh, investment check or you're presenting to the former CTO or of Blackstone, you have the pedigree to handle those conversations because, you know, we, I had to do that with multi-billion dollar hedge funds and stuff. So those things definitely uh, help you when you're meeting with strong investors. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And especially when you're, you're sitting in those meetings early stage, it might be your first company and you're getting hit with hard questions. And, uh, you know, you might be like the Teflon Don and you just think that it doesn't matter and it just washes off if you don't answer correctly. But those are uh, trying moments where you can either break a, a room into loving you or have them walk away and not close that deal, especially when it's pretty impactful to your business. Yeah, for sure. And I think also like because how fast paced the, the markets are, especially when you're dealing with hedge funds and stuff, you know, taking the raw emotion out of decision making is really, really hard to do, but it's really important. Fortunately, in, in venture, it's a very long period of time, um, but it's also a very short period of time to make a decision, you know, due diligence and uh, time periods to close are getting compressed every single day. So you have to make a commitment for 10 years in 30 days. And, and having the ability to separate your raw emotions from that decision-making process is really important. And how have you taken that, I guess, that piece of separating that emotion out of your decision-making? Um, how have you taken that into the context again of today? Because you, do have, you don't have to make choices in 30 days or in 15 days. You've got some time to work with the startup and decide if you're investing. But how do you take that emotion out where you really get into the solve? Like, are they really solving a problem? And is this something we can get behind? Yeah, so we've really built out our due diligence process uh, since the beginning of when we started. It continues to evolve every day, but we have uh, a very clear defined process when it comes to sourcing deals and how they get into our funnel and how they make their way through the funnel with pitches to you know, associates, principals, and then partners. Uh, what are the criteria we need to see like from a quantitative point of view before we even consider this investment? Like We really stick to our investment thesis and our mandate and promise we made to our LP so we don't get distracted. So you are weeding out 99% of the stuff that you typically do see. But when you do become excited and engaged, it's really important to you know get excited and, and want to feel the energy that the founders are bringing to the table, but also stick to the due diligence process that we've set out, which is you know building a data room, uh, getting all the you know the customer interviews and the raw metrics on the business into a data set that we can work with 
um, going through technical due diligence, understanding their tech stack and the gaps in their you know, tech architecture and infrastructure they built around them. What does their tech debt look like? Doing a lot of like background research on the team, background checks on the team. Uh, we do have a very robust due diligence process, even for the stage we're investing when there's not a lot of data to go on um, so that we don't let emotions sway us one way or the other. Brilliant. So, and you mentioned a couple of things there that, that really do stand out, which is that outside of going really into your deep dive and doing technical background and, and doing uh, background checks and, and talking with uh, clients and really understanding the meat and potatoes of their business, um, is while you're doing that, does some of this, the first investment you made in Turnstile and then being sold to Yelp, how much of that plays into this process as well? Because you've gone through something that most startups don't go through. Or, you know, they may fail, they may be successful, there's all these maybes in there, but you've gone through that whole kind of process. So how much of that did you layer in and say, you know what, guys, no, 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 we're not doing it that way. I lived through this process and to make this easier for them, this is what we got to do. Yeah, I mean, first off, let's let's understand everyone that there is no shortcuts in, in, in building a startup or venture investing. If there were shortcuts, they'd just be called the way, right? Like there's no way around the work that needs to be done building a company. Um, but I think where the, like the turnstile experience and some of my other angel investments uh, have lent a hand is in the ability to understand the team, the dynamic, and the sort of what's motivating the founders to continue to dedicate their life to this. Like I would continuously bet on founders who are so hell bent on uh, building something great rather than a founder who has something that's decent, but would sell it to the next buyer that came around for 10 to 20 million. I mean, I always ask founders, if I offered you $20 million for your business right now, would you sell it? And if the answer is like, yeah, I probably would, then it's not an outcome that we're looking for and we probably wouldn't invest. And that's not to say that's wrong, the wrong answer, but we just know that the law of large numbers has to come into equation here when we're investing. We cannot put an investment in at a $10 million valuation. And after all that dilution and ESOPs and all that top ups, you know, end up with like a 1.2 times return. That's not going to really work for the fund that we have to invest with the limited capital and the number of chances we have to step up to the plate. So that's really uh, hard, especially knowing that like, more than 50% of the investments are not going to be fund returns, you know, like 20, 25% is going to return the fund. So we need to go into every investment knowing that the founders are committed to building something that's going to be a, a big outcome for, for everyone. And so, you know, we ask people, are you in it for the salary? Are you in it for like the small exit? Uh, are you going to continue to do this? Or is this your one shot at building something massive? Uh, and those experiences from Turnstile allow me to kind of filter through the, the noise uh, a bit better because there is no data around that. No, I agree with that. And and you're uh, the, and everything. I always relate everything to experience because you got where you are today because of the experiences you had at the banks. You had the experience uh, selling and, and buying a company, investing in companies, and then that hopefully transfers 100% into the companies you're investing in or working with. So it, it does really cross pollinate quite a bit. Uh, and I love the fact that you really do because of the early stage that you focus on is that you focus on that CEO. Is there any kind of outside tips? You've shared a few, but any outside tips that really um, get you excited about how a CEO works? For me, I like a CEO that's like almost psychotic in the sense that they know this market like you wouldn't believe and they're pivoting and shaking and moving and they've just got to focus. They know where they got to go. They love input from people, but they're just like, I got to go down there. 
And, uh, you know, how are you taking that and what do you look to try to push and, and help your uh, CEOs with? Yeah, so there's two kinds of CEOs in our mind. Uh, one, there's the technical CEO, the engineering computer science background CEO, who's really good at building products and getting you know technology built and, and talking the talk of what they're actually building. But they're really bad at the sales part of it. They're pretty bad at recruiting uh, salespeople, obviously, and operations people. And they're pretty bad at fundraising uh, because they're so focused on computer science engineering type work. Then there's the sales type of CEO. There's the one who's really good at selling the story, really good at recruiting, really good at fine, uh, fundraising, but not so good at really staying focused on the business and focused on the challenges of building a product that people really want and understanding the nuances that go into that. And so when we look at the CEO, we one, look at which one they are. Are you technical or are you sales CEO? If you're sales CEO, it's really, really important. You have a technical partner at the helm with you whether it's your CTO, co-founder, or VP of Eng, someone that is your right-hand man or woman in that, that seat that you can really default to. And then on the technical side, if you're the one who's fundraising, after we invest, we make sure that they bring in a strong salesy type of leader to bring the sales team, the fundraising, all that stuff together. Because you, know, you can't have one entrepreneur that can build the product, finance and fundraise for the product, and sell the product. It's impossible to find that. And so we want to make sure you have all your bases covered. So we found that at the early stage, technical CEOs are, are good, um, but they lose a lot of steam because they're really bad at fundraising and recruiting and stuff like that. So you got to make sure you, you know which ones you fall into. And there's a, there's a good off balance too. Like you said, on the technical side, you can really tell when you're working with a technical founder, uh, they're really head into the product and they're forgetting that they don't have a business until they sell so they just really build this super amazing product or service, whatever that might be. And there's a whole other game that they haven't even started to tackle yet. So it, it does become, uh, I think it does become something that you really got to bring to the game for them and help them out with it. Uh, like a lot of the times they may know their shortcomings on that side, but it's also great for that founder to be also at a series A, series B, because those things also help you keep that focus and drive going forward. But like you said, if you don't have a great sales team supporting it or flip that, you don't have a great product team, you're going to get yourself stuck in a bit of a bind when you're trying to raise those next rounds. Yeah. I mean, let's be frank here. Everyone calls themselves um, a founder when they start the company because they are the founders, but they're not always the CEO. And that's something I think people just sort of default to. It's like, well, I'm the founder. I must be the CEO. You kind of look around the garage and you're like, well, who wants to be the CEO? And say, like, I'll be the CEO, I guess. And that's kind of how these companies get started. And what they soon to realize is, one, the founder title can never be taken away from them. And that's the most important title. But you have to be humble enough to understand that you may not always be a CEO of the company. And that's okay. Because that role is very specific to a specific skill set and responsibility. Um, but some founders have a hard time letting go of that. It's true. I was asked that, asked that question today on a, a podcast that I was on and they asked, they said, uh, how come VCs fire CEOs all the time? Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, it's not that it happens all the time. I'm like, it's kind of a rarity, but most of the time, as you said, you have a founder and you have uh, a CEO, you have a president, you have different roles that people fit in. And at different times too, you might go to a series A and that founder might not be the right tool for that time period. So there's going to be a bit of a shift that goes on. And I think yeah. that becomes part of the investment group like you guys, where you're evaluating and helping them better understand their skill set and where they fit. 
Totally. Is there totally. um, in this in this process you're going through? You mentioned another piece that's uh, really fascinating to me, which is the governance side. How how do you implement this governance side uh, at an early stage when the companies are really just trying to keep their feet underneath them? So what are the kind of little things that you can tweak or give them as tools to help them kind of build into this process as they start to grow and get up to those different series of investments? Yeah. So even before we invest, we're pretty uh, straightforward with a lot of the founders and tell them like, we're going to be in your business, right? We're not going to be just here for quarterly board meetings or annual investor updates. We're, we're going to be in your business on a day-to-day basis, um, especially in the early days, right? Um, when really a lot of the work is getting done, you're recruiting, you're building, things like that. Um, so we, uh, we put a fractional CFO into businesses right away if they, if they need a need for you know, financing and you know, bookkeeping and stuff like that, just to take the weight off their shoulders, especially a lot of CEOs. Um, they're not really good at that stuff, but it's really important that you have that done properly, your taxes, your filings, all that stuff. So we do that with them. Uh, we put in templates on like reporting uh, updates, uh, recruiting templates. We have a lot of recruiters that we work with um, that can take a lot of the work off of them. Uh, it's really about building the framework early on so you don't have to rebuild it later. So a lot of companies like, let's say they start on uh, you know HubSpot or something for their CRM or some other like kind of cheaper system. That's great. But realize that when you eventually move to Salesforce or something, it's going to cost you a lot more time and money to rebuild it somewhere else. So you might as well invest now in the infrastructure that you may not be ready for so that by the time you end up growing into it, you'll be way farther ahead. And so we do a lot of that sort of uh, infrastructure building with the companies to explain to them, you can't see around the corner yet, but we have seen around the corner in other companies. And this is the important stuff that you need to do. Uh, and, and those are the kind of things that we try to help our companies with. I like that where you can't see around the corner and you're bringing that experience in and helping them and guiding them through that. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. And what do you find the take is on that? Because you guys come in on two sides, right? You're coming in as an investor, as in cash, but then you're also coming in uh, as part of your think tank, if you will, or your accelerator. So is it already structured that way that, hey, when you come in, if we make an investment, here's the things that are going to happen it's already, they already see this. So they're like a team of two or a team of 10. It doesn't matter. This is the process they're going to fall into. Or are they coming to you saying, hey, we're, we like your money, but we're not really into this process. Yeah. So in the fund one, we were doing like pre-seed early revenue or even no revenue companies. And of the seven Canadian ones we invested in, six of them were in the tank, uh, which worked out really well. Um, and so uh, we were very open when we were negotiating with them on like, you know, investments. We were, you know, we led 80% of the deals in fund one. So we had a lot of say at the table when we were going through the, the financing conversations. Um, so they were really excited, right? Like a lot of the companies, if they weren't excited to work with us, like what, why would we even invest? Uh, so it wasn't really like a pulling them into our world. It was like, let's get going and let's get to work, which worked out well. You know, companies like VoiceFlow and, and Synapse and Pitstop and Tread, you know, they've all moved towards series A and beyond. And, and it's been great to have them a part of that journey. Um, and then going into our second fund now, uh, we're doing a little bit later stage investing. Uh, we're doing more C plus early series A investments. And those companies are just bigger and they don't need a, a, a space as much. And they also have a, a good structure around them. So we're not putting the, the tank around them uh, per se right now. We still have a lot of like the virtual infrastructure that we're supporting them with. Uh, but, you know, going forward, we still see the tank playing a, a pretty special role in the earlier stage companies, you know, pre-seed and stuff at the five to 10 employee size. 
Okay. No, that makes sense. So when you wrap the, the, the tank component around it, even if you do move to later stage, as you mentioned, you're still taking the principles behind it. So there's still the opportunity to provide them with the resourcing or the templates or the, the things that are going to help them grow regardless. So it's not like you're throwing it away and just saying, Hey, let's just focus on this, uh, this aspect of it. You're still bringing that arsenal with you. Correct. Totally. Yeah. That makes sense. No, that's great. So maybe uh, you can share a little bit about um, uh, your second fund and kind of the direction you're going with it. You mentioned a little bit about it, but maybe give us a, a bigger, broader picture of, of how that's looking and, and deal flow wise and the types of companies and verticals that you're going after. Sure. Yeah. So we, uh, we kind of came up on our two year anniversary uh, this past September. So about a year and a half into fund one. Um, we decided that uh, we were going to go out and raise a second fund probably in the summertime of this past 2020 year. Um, and then COVID kind of happened. Everything was on pause. Uh, and then a bunch of our investors uh, who were really supportive of us, they liked what we were doing in fund one. And they said, you know, we think you should go out and raise a, a fund now instead of waiting uh, to take advantage of some of the dislocation in the market when everyone's sort of sitting on their hands. So we went out and did a first close in our fund two um, which was great. We had tons of support from our existing investors and brought in some new strategic investors. Um, and, and that was awesome. Like round 13 was an investor uh, and some other family offices. And so we went out and did our first deal, which was Rose Rocket, which was a, a great trucking logistics company that I've tracked and followed for a very long time. And so we led their C plus bridge round, uh, which was awesome. And, um, and then we ended up doing another deal in a Vancouver based company that's um, you know an awesome bootstrap company that we found. So a lot of our deal flow in this fund is coming actually from outbound sourcing, uh, not a lot of inbound sourcing, which has been great. Uh, we have some proprietary data scraping models that we've put together to find companies uh, who are not actually fundraising, uh, who are you know kind of flying under the radar, and we've just you know found them and reached out to them and seen if they want to get to know us and potentially work together. And that's how we found uh, our first two and soon to be third investment in fund two. So the thesis for our first fund and now our second fund is the exact same. Uh, we are B two B enterprise SaaS focused investors. Um, focused on two verticals, which are workflow automation software. So taking legacy paper-based industries and converting them to digital, more you know, efficient uh, and, and sort of productized uh, business models. And then uh, the democratization of data analytics platforms for the non-data scientist, the non-developer. So those are the kind of two buckets we focus on. And examples of those in our first fund would be, you know, workflow automation would be, um, a company like Bear Health Technologies taking, you know, manual uh, paper-based medical records and then running them through a digitization process and using machine learning and AI to build like a, a medical summarization for the insurance industry or the paralegal or workers' comp uh, industry or Tread Technologies, which is taking the, you know, very paper-based construction heavy uh, equipment industry and turning it into a digital marketplace for the uh, exchange of uh, use of uh, heavy equipment in the re real estate and construction space. Um, and then in the data and analytics space is like Aptio, which is basically helping uh, e-commerce companies take their existing Square and Stripe data or Shopify data and helping them understand insights into their data sets that they don't typically understand, like predicting churn for them or targeting better sales efforts or marketing efforts um, with the data they currently have without having to be a data scientist to actually manage that data set. Um, so those are the kind of areas we're focused on. Oh, that sounds amazing. And 
uh, of these companies that are in this second round and you're going to continue to bring in, um, are they still going to be on that uh, seed stage and above or are you going to go to series A or is it still kind of unsure? So no, we're, you know, we're moving in a direction that we think makes sense for our investors. So in first fund, we were kind of pre-seed seed. Second fund, you know, we decided to go a little bit later stage, seed plus early series A. And that was really a factor of just where valuations were at the seed stage. We were seeing companies doing 250 to 500K in ARR, getting priced at 20 to 40 times revenue versus companies doing two to $5 million in ARR getting priced at, you know, five times revenue. So it just didn't make sense for us to get the same, uh, same ownership, but with a, you know, much better company. Um, so our companies now are kind of at that C plus early series A stage. And that's where we're focusing right now because of valuations. Um, but we do plan to still go into the pre-seed early series or early seed stage uh, world again, maybe in future funds. Okay. Um, there's uh a little bit about um, you guys have a fellowship program as well. This is what I was talking about. You guys got a lot of things happening, a lot of cool things. Uh, can you give us a, a breakdown of how this fellowship program works? Yeah. So we have, um, we have this platform approach to, to venture. We're not looking at building a venture fund. We're looking at building a venture platform. Uh, and the platform is encompassed of a couple of things. Uh, first off, Ripple Ventures is part of a larger Ripple group that I started with my best friend and partner uh, who runs Ripple Developments. So Ripple Developments is the real estate commercial industrial development program that we run for investors to invest in real estate. And then we have Ripple Capital, which is the uh, early emerging manager investment vehicle that we put money into some early um, emerging managers running very small funds to get access to angel deal flow and stuff like that. Uh, and that's predominantly my capital to go towards that. In terms of Ripple Ventures and our Ripple X uh, platform, we have um, our Ripple X Fellowship Program, which my uh, colleague and principal Dominic Lau runs, which is a, a four month, 16 week comprehensive program. Uh, education program that we've designed to help university and college students learn about venture capital while they're still in school in their college ecosystem. And what we do is we teach them how to find companies, uh, due diligence them, analyze them, and then eventually prepare them for pitch to the partners at the end of their semester. Um, and it really helps us create future founders and future funders. I mean, we've had three or four companies go on to be accepted to Y Combinator. We've got, you know, over 50% uh, people of color, over 50% uh, women representation. So very diverse uh, uh, group that we have bringing into the program. We get about 200 applications a semester. We only accept 10. So it is pretty competitive. And we've had students all the way from all the Canadian schools to Ivy League schools like Harvard, and Cornell, and then we have MIT and NYU and, you know, even smaller schools in, in the middle of the U.S. So it's been a great way for building out our network. And it's a great way for us to find new talent and potentially new companies to invest in. Brilliant. I love it. And how do you, what's the, the 10 people that you do bring in? How do you break that down? Is it social? So we've gone to tie into it. Uh, so everyone applies. Um, so we have an application process. We actually just closed our most recent cohort. I think it's our fifth one uh, on Monday. So we'll, we'll be going through the uh, resumes and applications now. Um, and then even if you don't actually get accepted into the fellowship program, we still have a community uh, Slack channel with over 300 people in it for everyone who's applied, but that wasn't accepted. So they can still take part in the community and share ideas and insights and angel investments and things like that. So if anyone wants and they can check it out, it's just fellowship.rippleventures.com. 
Uh, you'll be able to see all of our content we produce for free available and you can join the Slack channel if you want as well. Awesome. I think I want to sign up for your cohort. This sounds pretty <laughs> exciting. You got to be in school. I'm going to sign up for school then. I'll take a class. <laughs> okay. I can do awesome. this. Uh, that's cool. Uh, no, it sounds like, again, you guys got a nice full system that's just kind of helping work on the base and make it all the way through so that eventually that student will come back. Uh, it's brilliant. Uh, I really like that. Um, Thank you. Uh, the last question I have on this before we shift over to the rapid fire questions is Tokyo smoke. <laughs> How did that work out? What does that look like? Uh, I'm a fan of them. Uh, I like what he's done. I've met him a few times. Good guy. I, I know they sold the business. Um, but how does this all work out and what you guys have done with them? Are you still working with them? Are you still invested in them? Or how did that whole process work? Yeah. So I met Alan Gertner, the founder of Tokyo Smoke, uh, pretty early on in 2014, 15, um, he actually was one of the first customers of Turnstile's Wi-Fi uh, marketing systems because his office, his first coffee shop was in the same office as Turnstile's. So he, his dad, I think owned the building. And so that very first coffee shop there uh, was uh, above or below our uh, office. So every day I was there, got to see it, grab a coffee, chat with him. So we started building a relationship. And then when he went out to raise his first financing round, I invested uh, in the company. And then again, in the next round of investments. So it worked out pretty well uh, when they got acquired. Well, first they got acquired by Doja, went public, and then they got acquired by Canopy Growth later on. So definitely not involved in the company at all. Uh, was just a sort of silent investor, but knew Alan for, for a couple of years and he was a great guy to work with. And then funny enough, the uh, one of my good friends who I, I met through Turnstile was the head of the retail group at Tokyo Smoke and one of the uh, operators at Tokyo Smoke as well, Mimi Lam, they actually left and then started a, another company called Superette, which I was one of the first investors in. And that is one of the up and coming top uh, Canadian cannabis retail brands and uh, retail stores um, that I'm really excited and passionate about. So uh, definitely check that one out. Uh, they've got a couple of stores in Toronto now and one uh, head office or head store in Ottawa that the, one of the first ones they opened. What's it called? Superette. I think I met her at a speaking event one time. Yeah, Mimi Lam and uh, Drummond Monroe, two incredible founders. Yeah, I think it was Mimi Lam. I saw her. It was at a women's event that uh, she was speaking at, pretty sure. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. so very exciting. So you've, you've really done a lot of great things in this community. So kudos, and uh, that's amazing. Glad you came back to Toronto. Thank you. Well, I've, I've definitely lost money on angel investments, so I don't shy away from talking about those. So you know, happy to explain those to people, the lessons I learned from that as well. But I'll let you carry on with the rapid fire. Oh, there's, uh, there is lots of lessons to be learned and uh, lots of uh, good and horror and bad stories, right, that uh, we work through as uh, investors. So, all right, we'll do the rapid fire questions and then we can go back to and share, you can share one of those stories. So, sure. All right. So first question, what's your favorite part of investing? Um, seeing the uh, hard work pay off for the founders at the very end, even though they can't see it when they're grimacing for the few years in between. Just seeing that pure enjoyment of their hands up when they finally get that. Uh, the success, I agree. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Mm, probably about six, seven. Okay. Perfect. Any, you mentioned some verticals, but uh, main verticals you focus on? B2B enterprise SaaS, as long as it touches the you know enterprise, we don't do direct to consumer, we don't do hardware, we don't do anything uh, in like the crypto cannabis space in the fund, um, that uh, that's not where we play. Okay. Any 
do you have any due diligence requirements that you look for before you make a full commitment? Anything that has to be there? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, uh, we have to see in our current fund, 500K of minimum ARR in the business, uh, and they can't have raised more than $5 million to date. Okay. I like it. Uh, timeline for investment, like one month, one week, two days, three months. You mean from first meeting to close? Uh, the fastest we've probably done first meeting to close is like, let's say 60 days. Okay. Maybe 45, but I think it's probably, yeah. Like if it was like an early run, like I think when we did the voice flow one, it was probably less than 45 days, but that was like an early pre-seed round. So it becomes more complicated when you go in the later stage, but pre-seed, we were probably closer to 30 days. Okay. Uh, outside of DD, you guys have uh, the tank. So I guess that's probably some of it, but what are the things that you do outside of just putting in fun and money? Yeah. So we put a lot of, uh, like I said, structural support around the business, and then we help build out their future financing strategy. So we rebuild in their entire, you know, Cedar series a deck for them, build their data room with them. We run the entire uh, fundraising process. So we have a, you know, a list of over 200 VC funds that we work closely with or strategic investors. And so we'll compile the best investors for them to meet. And then we'll help the introductions and help them pitch those uh, investors for future financing rounds. I love it. Uh, do you guys lead rounds? Yep. So we led 80% of our deals in fund one. We've led 100% of our deals in fund two. Okay. Uh, any preferred terms on investing that you like? Craft shares? Well, I'll tell you what we don't like. We don't do uh, safes. Uh, if we do convertible notes, they're always a post-money convertible note. Uh, but we prefer to do priced equity rounds. Um, and um, yeah, we always do like preferred shares, common shares we leave for like the founders and stuff. Okay. Take board seats? Yes, or board observer. We're not hard pressed on taking board seats, but if we do, if we can, we do. If not, uh, we'll take board observer. Okay, uh, percentage of reinvestments? Uh, in companies in fund one, we've invested in, reinvested in, I believe, 80%. Okay. Follow on. So high. That's good. That's a high number. Yeah, well, sure. we've done four series A's and three follow ons, so feeling pretty good. Brilliant. Uh, what other ones we've got? Uh, any companies that you have right now that you're working with that you want to throw it as a notable company that uh, you want to share? Um, honestly, I think some of our most exciting companies, uh, VoiceFlow for sure. If there's anyone who's like a hobbyist out there or looking to get into the conversational design space for Alexa, Google Assistant, whatever, they are by far the top uh, conversational design platform in the world. Uh, they produce the most amount of skills or apps for any uh, voice speaker, smart speaker out there. So check that out. Aptio, if you're an e-commerce company or you know e-commerce startups that are really struggling with churn analysis, uh, they should check out Aptio. Um, and then we are about to close on a podcasting platform. So uh, I will share that with you once we're done, but it's uh, one of the best high quality uh, recording and editing podcasting platforms in the world, uh, in the US. So um Definitely happy to share that after if there's any podcasters out there. I know we are. We're podcasters. We have the tank talk. So I, I love it. No, that's awesome. Yeah, it'd be great to know what that one is. I was talking with one of the US. They were more of how they were converting um, users into getting paid. Um, advertisers? Get paid for their, what's that? Oh, cool. Like paid advertisers or just paid? Paid. Get to get paid in general. So that, Oh, cool. Uh, like Patreon or something. Yeah, just like that. Got it. Yeah. We're waiting for more traction on them, but they were also very, a um, little more high priced because of 
the tech and the space that they were trying to break into. So, um, but either way, it's still good. All right. So we're going to get to a couple personal questions in a second, but one question for you that, uh, um, what I'd love to hear about is throughout this journey of all the things you've been doing in this space, uh, we always come across that one story that just blows our mind that, you know, a, a startup did X, she was able to overcome Y, or he was able to do this and it just turned into a great story. Is, uh, is there any heartfelt stories that you've got that really uh, um, would pique the audience's interest, I guess, if you will, in, uh, in our conversation? Yeah, I mean, Turnstile is near and dear to my heart for sure. Like Devin Wright, uh, the CEO and co-founder, he went through so much hell to get that company to success. You know, he had no technical skills. He had no like private equity venture background. And just the way that he begged, borrowed and steeled his way through like the early days when we had no funding. I mean, I put the first check in to get the company started. It was a lot of money for me, but it wasn't a lot of money in the grand scheme of things to get the company where it is. And just a lot of the grit and tenacity he showed, he pitched probably over 300 investors and got no's from most of them. But to continue to still go through that, I mean, eventually getting the company acquired was not only a huge testament to, to him and what he was able to build around him, but the amount of people's lives he influenced was just incredible. I mean, that's why I called it Ripple as well. The ripple effect of my investment into him and then what he did to change people's lives. I mean, we had people that came on to the team uh, from pretty like boring, nothing backgrounds. And now they're like leading some pretty big companies and and doing some really great things in the space. And we kind of always say we want to be like a mini PayPal mafia where we all come back together again, or we all go around and do stuff. And maybe that will happen. But like, you know, Ryan Freeman, now head of DoorDash Canada, uh, incredible story for, for him. We've got some, you know, customer success people that went over to Israel and, and are running some pretty cool things over there. And there's just a lot of great things that came out of that one decision I made to support a guy like Devin and the team and to get them to the next level. And that story will just, you know, very underrated, not many people know about it, but it just had a huge impact on my life. So that one's near and dear to my heart. Well, it helped you create everything you're doing right now. So it's, it, it, it certainly uh, pushed you that Feels day like and it, it pushed you all the way through, right? The learning you took from that is what you're feeding the rest of the ecosystem with. So it's brilliant. Yeah. Feel that way. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Great story. Um, okay, so next part, uh, I learned to do this uh, not too long ago on the podcast, which was through another podcast of a company we're working with. And I thought, man, this is brilliant. I got to try and open up and be a little bit more personal instead of just all business. So uh, I always like to start a conversation off with one thing nobody will know about you because I feel we always have to have something that we'll remember about that person. So I'm always going to remember you as the barefoot guy. <laughs> now, I probably, I'll, like 20 years from now, I'm going to be like, I remember you. I know you. I can't remember your name, but you had the bare feet guy. Yeah, exactly. Because it's I'll the only one around beef brain bare feet, probably. Yeah. It's the only way that his brain works. So, but on the other side, the, the personal side is uh, quick, quick questions, I guess. So what's your favorite sports team? I mean, I got to go, even though it kills me with the Leafs, just because my family had, uh, my grandfather got season tickets. The first thing he did when he came back from the war was he bought season tickets to the Leafs. And so they've been in my family ever since. So I got to say that just to honor him. Oh man, that's amazing. Tay, what I was going to be like, I can't hear you. Something's not working on this. I think we're <laughs> shutting down. But, uh, but then you went into a better story for him. And now I actually really have to ask some questions about this. I wasn't going to, but now I need to know. So how does it work with season tickets when your grandfather bought them post-war? Does the family own them forever at the same price he bought them at that time? 
<laughs> no, uh, the one thing they did do, which was really cool uh, for any Toronto fans out there. So when they converted over from Maple Leaf Gardens to Air Canada Centre, yep. they allowed uh, the longest tenor season ticket holders to come into the building and choose the seats they wanted first. So if you were up in like purples in Maple Leaf yep. Gardens, you were allowed and you were the longest season ticket holder, you could go into ACC and pick your first seat. Which was really cool because if you were like golds and you only had golds for like five years before they switched, you had to wait to the back of the line. So our family chose to do uh, reds, which was like a, a, you know, middle of the pack kind of seat. Uh, but we had like corner reds and it's just a, a great experience for the family. So uh, me and my brothers, we all split them uh, just to kind of honor my grandfather and, and to give the, the kids a tradition that we had growing up as kids. Even really? And the red seats are actually pretty damn good. I'm sorry, but gold? I really don't like to see this right here, the play. No, no, I don't it's like it terrible. Who likes watching a game like that? I'd rather be up yeah. here looking at the game, not, hey, I wonder what he's yeah, doing. That's exactly what we chose. Yeah, it's brilliant. Good choice. Um, all right, favorite movie, and what character would you play in that movie? Oh, man. <laughs> like a stupid answer has got to be like Matthew McConaughey in Dazed and Confused. Uh, <laughs> just because like he's so out there and just having the best time. Yeah, I don't think um, that's a bad answer. That's good. That's good. Sometimes, though, like when I really feel um, feel like a little bit like, you know, I want to get out of this world sometimes into the wilderness. Uh, ah, that's a great one. Yep. Yep. Just, yeah. I read that, that book. It's good. Yeah. It, it kind of makes you put, put everything in perspective someday. So I don't really have a, a, a movie that stands out forever, but those are a couple. All right, man. That was brilliant. Uh, I liked it. Uh, both are good movies. Good choices. Um I might actually have to go watch one of them again. It's it's good. I've actually been getting some really good insights into movies from the 50s and a whole bunch of things all over the place. Uh, ones I haven't seen and ones I got to look at. So these are good. I'm going to have to. Yeah. Uh, into uh, the wild. Into the wild. Yeah. Into the wild. It's a good one. Yeah. I like that. Well, I think, uh, Matthew, that comes to the end of our time. I want to thank you very much for all your insights. As I always do, I took lots of notes and uh, <laughs> I'm a big fan uh, i appreciate all of the information you shared and the last My thing we like to do in, in all of our uh, uh events or podcasts is that i like to give you the last word anything you want to share to a startup or to an investor the floor is yours but uh, again thank you for uh for joining us today yeah all i'd say is you know um never judge a book by its cover uh you never know where a founder has come from and where they had to get to where they are to be able to even take the opportunity to pitch to you. So, you know, be humble, uh, let someone pitch to you. And if they've made some mistakes, you can give them constructive feedback, but don't knock them while they're down. Uh, they're really trying their best here. Uh, and it's really important for you to understand the context of where our founders come from. So I always like to ask them to tell me like why they want to dedicate their lives to working on a project, not just like how much money are you looking for and why should I give it to you? Uh, and I think that's really important. So just make sure you know that when you're meeting with founders these days. I love it. Be open-minded and uh, give everybody the time of day because they all deserve it. We've all come Absolutely. from different spots. Awesome, Matt. Well, great advice, great feedback. Again, thank you very much for coming on today. And uh, we're going to update you and let you know when everything's ready to go. But uh, again, appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Take care. Oh, that was brilliant. Uh, man, Matt and the, the team, those guys are doing a ton of stuff. Uh, so many notes. Uh, big fan of uh, everything that they're doing and they've really built up a great strong community uh, of way of helping founders. They're on their second fund, as they mentioned. Uh, and I, I really love the fact that he talked about there's no shortcuts to building a company. 
doesn't matter how you look at it, how you skin the cat, there's a process that you got to go through and they've structured a nice way of doing it. So uh, I really liked how he built that out. Uh, great that we've uh, got some uh, great connections that we've uh, crossed paths at some point in time um, and just love the background and everything these guys have done. So it was great chatting with them. And uh, just to his, his, uh, last, his last words, uh, as an investor, give people the, the time, listen to what they have to say, see where they're coming from and where they're going and see if you can give them just a little bit of nug of a nugget of help. And that could make a world of difference to that startup. But at the end, thank you everybody for joining us.